Hi, everybody. My name's Johnny Harris, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Hi. I, uh, I'm very glad to be here tonight, uh, sober. Just to be sober. I've been thinking about that word, sober. And when I crossed that word through my mind, that word runs through my mind, sober. As I was sitting at the old-timers gathering up this morning, I was thinking about being sober. And when I think about being sober, the thought never enters my mind about the absence of chemicals in my system. The thought never even enters there. It hasn't got anything to do with my thought pattern when I think about being sober. When I think about being sober, I think about the way I live. And the reason I tell you that is, I lived a certain way for a long period of time. And for a long period of time, I couldn't stay sober. And I couldn't stay out of trouble, which were synonymous in my life. Now, for an equally long period of time plus, I have lived an entirely different way. And in all that period of time, it had been necessary for me to instill any type of chemicals in my system or be in any trouble. So when I think about being sober, the lack of chemicals in my system or the drug alcohol has nothing to do with that. I just thought I'd tell you that. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to confuse you about all this deal, you know, I, because I get confused quite a bit. I'm a, I'd like to thank uh, the committee and particularly Joe, my dear friend Joe Phelan, for allowing me to participate in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I, uh, I've always considered it a privilege to be able to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous in any type of capacity that I'm allowed to participate in. So I thank you for allowing me to come here and share my experience, strength, and hope with you and tell you how extremely pleased I am to be here tonight fully clothed and in my right mind. <laughs> and the reason I tell you that is no particular reason other than the fact that the longer I stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more necessary it becomes for me to remember from whence I came. And I never want to forget that a little over 26 years ago right now, I was crawling around on my knees in a cell in solitary confinement in a maximum security penitentiary. And because of a loving God has expressed himself through a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, it's no longer necessary for me to crawl around on my hands and eat like an animal. Now, if I don't get anything out of this deal at all, I guess I could live with that all the way home. It kind of makes me feel good. <laughs> Just think about that. I'd like to be able to stand here tonight, and, uh, or I'd like to be able to stand anywhere in Alcoholics Anonymous or anywhere in the world where anybody would listen to me and be able to cry with great anguish. That's where alcohol and drugs took me to. That's where I took me to. I just want to get that straight with you. The only thing that alcohol and drugs did in my life, they kept me alive long enough to find you. You see, I'm just as sure as I'm standing here. Without alcohol working in my life, I'd have blown my brains out before I was nine years old. As far back as I could ever possibly remember, I've been some type of an emotional left fielder. I've always been out there wandering around somewhere. You know, I got a kick out of the guy who said he was going to take me by the pool. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you felt. Yeah, yeah. I always felt like that. I felt like there they Yeah, I, I remember looking at a family portrait one time, and I said, who's that? They said, that's you. I never felt like that. I didn't feel like I was part of it when he took the picture. Of course, that wasn't anything wrong with me. I never felt like I was part of anything. I never felt like that. I don't know how about you, but I felt like I was born with a little restlessness inside of me. Had a little bit of irritability in there, too. Just kind of wandered together, kind of hand in glove. You know, I was just restless and irritable. <laughs> Discontent. <laughs> That's the way I was born. So I guess maybe I was born with the disease of alcoholism. I don't know. But I always felt that way. I, I wasn't just restless and irritable. I was just downright angry about all that stuff. Because I had a lot of stuff to be angry in my early life. I, I like to be able to stand here and tell you, and I, I want to tell you that I've lived sober long enough in Alcoholics Anonymous to assume the entire blame for my own actions. 
I do not blame alcohol for any of my actions prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, nor do I blame my disease of alcoholism for any of my actions after I've come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I think that's no excuse for me being a jerk. <laughs> and I don't think it's an excuse for you being a jerk either. Now that I've got your inventory taken, I'll go on about my business. But I had these feelings inside me when I was a kid, and I, and I kept wandering around life trying to figure out who was responsible for the way I felt, because it was never my fault. It was always their fault. They had it. They had secrets that they weren't telling me. And they knew stuff that they weren't sharing with me. And they were keeping all that stuff to themselves. You know who they are? They're the reason we're in here. <laughs> Somebody wanders up to you after the meeting and says, Who's them days he's talking about? Send them to Al-Anon. <laughs> Jesus. They don't seem to know what they're there. That's the way I felt. But I had an excuse for why, the way I felt the way I felt. I, you see, I, I was born beneath my station. That was my excuse. I had a drunken mother, a drunken father, four drunken uncles, three drunken aunts, and a drunken grandfather. That's the reason I felt the way I felt. I was mad about that. I didn't like that deal. We lived in a little town in Kansas. And I felt guilty about that and ashamed about these things because these people did all the things they weren't supposed to do. My uncles and my father and my grandfather and all them people made whiskey and sold it. And my aunt sold anything they'd get a dollar for. They weren't particular. <laughs> Whatever it was, they sold it. And it didn't make any difference to them. That's just the way it was. And I felt very ashamed about that. But I never felt so ashamed. And I never was so far out of whack that I couldn't stand down on the street corner with my uncle on a Saturday night while he's peddling that whiskey and not be smart enough to stand there and bum him for an ice cream cone or something. I was never that ashamed. See. But I was always selling out. I was always giving up and selling out just for something that I wanted that would make me feel better. And as I was thinking about it, that's the earliest thing I remember about selling out to get something out there to make me feel better in there. I sold out doing things around people I didn't like, okaying their misbehavior for an ice cream cone. And I ended up an entire lifetime of my life selling me out and selling my soul, if you will, and everything that happened went along with it with people I didn't like doing things I didn't want to do. Because, you see, I never wanted to do any of the things that I did. I never wanted to have the thoughts in my head that I had in my head when I was a little kid. I never wanted to think the way I thought about my people. I never wanted to have them feelings of anger and hostility and brutal hatred and differentness in myself. I wanted to be like one of them kids. I wanted to be like the rest of them. I didn't want to feel the way I felt about him. I didn't want to feel ashamed about him. But I thought that I was, and I, wanted, and I thought that if all I had to do is go find some place that I belong. And my, my grandmother took me to my first look in places. My grandmother wasn't like all these other people. See, my grandmother was the only person in my family who I ever remember who never drank. My grandmother didn't drink or she didn't smoke, but my grandmother went someplace all the time. She left these people and she went someplace and she came back. And I had an idea, maybe I was like my grandmother. Because I didn't feel like these other people looked, and I didn't want to be like these other people, so maybe I'd like my grandmother. And if I could just go where my grandmother went and do what my grandmother did, I'd be like my grandmother. That's all I ever wanted. So one Sunday a long time ago, my grandmother told me that I could go with her that day. So I left these people that I felt different and strange and irritable around and hated, and I, I went on the other side of town, and I sit in another room full of people, different people. And I felt different and strange and irritable, and I hated all them people too. I didn't understand that. And I'm sitting there, I'm wondering what's going on. And then I did another thing that I followed all my life up until and including coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember sitting there, and I'm different, I'm strange, and I'm irritable, and I hate everything that moves, and I got this great big hole inside of me with the wind whistling through me, and I don't understand that. And I wait for this man in those long flowing robes to mount that rostrum, one of these quote and unquote superior people to tell me, an inferior person, why I felt that way. And I guess even more important than that, I wanted to tell me what to do about it. I remember him looking down where I was sitting and telling me I was supposed to love and honor and respect my parents. 
He said, you're supposed to love your brothers and your sisters. And I don't. I hate them. I hate them for reasons I don't even understand. And God, I feel guilty about that. I became frightened to death sitting in that church that people were going to find out I was hating when I was supposed to be loving. And that's another thing I carried with me into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember turning walking outside the door of the church that day. My old man standing there drunk and hung over. He reached over and tapped me on the head and said, Son, if you continue to go to church, you're going to grow up to be just like me. <laughs> I don't know what that did for your religious training, but I ain't been back to church since. And that ain't got nothing to do with churches. It's got nothing to do with organized religion. It's got an awful lot to do with me. You see, I lived in a house where there were two drunks working. If you don't know about houses like that, I'll explain them to you. Because those houses are not nice places for little kids to grow up in. In the middle of the night in houses like that, they're screaming and yelling and cussing and flesh hitting flesh and breaking furniture and deathly silence. Every once in a while, the old man come got me and started throwing me around the room. He didn't do it to my brothers, he just did it to me. And I can remember laying there in the middle of the night when he's gone somewhere, absolutely terrified, laying there, frightened to death because he's coming, and I know he's coming, and I know he's going to get me, and I don't know what to do about it. And I'm laying there with my thoughts, and I think thoughts that little kids think about in houses like that. I think about my uncles who live in penitentiaries. I think about my aunts who work in those houses on the other side of the track. I think about my old man who beats up my mother, my mother who beats up my old man. I think about all that kind of stuff. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. And one night it dawned upon me what the problem was. It's alcohol. They drink, and they do those things. I'm not going to drink because I'm not going to be like them. I'm going to be better than they are. I'm going to step out into that world. I'm going to have something. I'm going to do something. I'm going to be something. But what do you do if you're weird? (laughs) Say, well, I'll tell you. (laughs) You may think that's funny, but I don't think that's funny. Because what happened to me is that stuff went down in there and it just kind of took That's what alcohol did for me. Alcohol took me from the black pit of nothingness. It moved me into the gray fringes of the business of living. It installed in me some type of arrogance that said, Damn you world, it's all right. Maybe I'm not good enough to be around the good people. Maybe I'm too good to be around the bad people. But it's okay right here. That's what alcohol did for me. Now I'll tell you a strange secret. If alcohol still did that, I'd still drink it. And the reason I don't drink alcohol to use drugs anymore, they don't work. That's as simple as I know how to take. And the sad part about my life is, they quit working ten years before I knew they did. <laughs> I'll tell you, that's the type of hell nobody wants to be without. Wandering around out there trying to find the answer in the end of something that ain't an answer no more. It just continually be now. What happened to me is very simple. Every time I drank, the same thing happened to me. I got drunk, and three days later, they pulled me out from underneath a bridge and stood me in front of a judge and sent me to the Hutchinson State Reform School. Twenty years later, I got drunk, and they pulled me out of a car in Compton and stood me in front of a judge and sent me to 20 years in the penitentiary. Every time I drank, that's what happened to me. I got drunk and went places. Just kind of travel around out there somewhere. I, I'd like to be able to stand here and tell you about all the jobs I lost while drinking. You can't lose something you don't have. <laughs> I'd like to stand here and tell you about all the schools I got thrown out of while drinking. You don't get thrown out of something you don't go to. From my first drink of alcohol to my last fix, whatever it was, I only lived with two thoughts in my head and two thoughts only. And heaven help you or anybody else that got between me and those two thoughts. And the thoughts were this, get loaded or get the money to get loaded on. And I became willing to pay any price there was to pay, do anything that was necessary to do, just to get that feeling that I got when that chemical, whatever it was, went in there and did that magic thing for me. Now I'm going to tell you a strange secret as I look back on my own experience, in Alcoholics Anonymous, and my own experience prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, it never ever did the same thing twice. It never, ever fulfilled its promise 
the second time through. It was always a liar. Alcohol is the great deceiver of things. I found that out. I also found out that chemicals run right along inside of it. And if you add some type of chemicals to your alcoholism, sooner or later they'll lie to you too. If it wasn't true, why would it take more and more and more to do less and less and less? So it was with my life. Now what happened to me was, my mother took me out of that reform school and took me to California. On the way to California, she said something to me. She said, when we get to California, things are going to be different. They were. They were worse. We left our one-room shack in Kansas, went to California, and got us a one-room shack with a bathroom. My mother got me a couple of new uncles and introduced them to me. (laughs) 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 And I went on to the street corner and got drunk. And I made a fantastic discovery, the greatest discovery of my life. I found out that alcohol would do the same thing to me in California that it did in Kansas. Now, I don't know how you felt about it the second time you ever drank, but you see, prior to that, I was tired of people telling me things they weren't going to do. I was tired of getting my hopes and dreams and aspirations that high off the ground. But I found out if I threw a brick through a window and got a bottle of Marco Petri red wine and drank it, it did exactly what I anticipated doing. It went down in there and just kind of tore the madness from me. Took me from there and it stood me there and gave me that and I got drunk and went to juvenile hall. I spent the next three and a half years of my life in a running court battle with my mother, a lawyer, and a judge. Once a month I went in front of a judge. He sends me to Whittier State Reform School. Once a month my mother stood with a lawyer and appealed it. Once a month my mother come to visit me and she said, I love you and I miss you. When you come home, things are going to be different. Now, for a long time, I didn't buy that because I'm not, I'm not going to get kicked around anymore. I'm, I'm already starting to build them walls behind me and get behind them, hide them out there. And so, but somewhere during that three and a half year period of time, I switched over and started to believe my mother. And the reason I started to believe my mother is because I wanted so desperately to believe my mother. You see, I wanted so desperately to believe that my answer to my problem was in a little white house with a little picket fence and a little old lady with a tray full of cookies and milk. I wanted so desperately to believe that answer. If that could be true, you see, that gave me a perfect excuse to do anything I wanted to do to anybody I wanted to do it to them to for as long as I had to do it then show up someday and eat cookies and be wonderful. See, that's the way I lived all my life. All my life. I'm looking for the answer somewhere there if I can just get it together out there. You see, if that's true, I never have to stand responsible for my own actions. I can always say when I get there. And that almost killed me. The persistence of that illusion was astonishing. I took it into the gates of insanity and death, trying to find the answer somewhere that it wasn't. Because even back there, as I look at my experience, I find out that alcohol was starting to lose its effect with me. I'm looking for an answer somewhere else. Alcohol starting to lose its effect. I got to a boy's home in the San Fernando Valley as a result of that court battle. And when I got there, the superintendent told me if I was a good kid, I could go home. And I hadn't been home in a long time. And I wanted to go home because I'd been living with this dream. It's going to be better over there. So one Saturday, they loaded us on an old truck, and they brought us out of the valley, and it was an all-day trip, and they dropped us off in downtown Hollywood. And I had to run to get to the old subway car right downtown L.A. And I had to get off the subway car to ride down to Willowbrook, where I lived. And I got off the ground running a mile and a half to my mother's house, around the corner and down the street. It's all over now. No more difference than, no more apart from, going to be fine. I don't know what I expected. Blues on the ceiling, a big cake, welcome home, Sonny. We haven't seen you for three and a half years. Everything's going well, blah, blah, blah. When I got to my mother's house, there was a drunken party going on there. Nothing changed except me. I'd spent three and a half years in juvenile hall. I'd heard a lot of strange things. I'd heard things like everybody's a liar and everybody's a cheat. Never believe anybody that used to tell me because that's a sign of weakness. Never show anybody to care for them, they used to tell me, because that's weakness. And more important than anything else, never reach your hand up out of the gutter, because the minute you do that, they come along and kick you in the teeth. Now, I don't want to believe that, because there was something down in here that said that's not true. But I walked out of my mother's house that day and made a vow to myself, if I lived to be 500 years old, I'd never show anybody any human emotions again. I went on the street corner and got drunk. I come home next month and got drunk again. Long about that time in my life, I was a periodic. Well, I was supposed to be a periodic. They only let me out once a month, so I only got drunk once a month. 
It's very same thing. I'd come home, throw a brick through a window, get a bottle of Marco Petri red wine, and get drunk and go back to school. And my first week in school was fine. I was an athlete. I took strenuous exercise. My second week in school was fine. I was a scholar. I read and studied and did all the things you're supposed to do. My third week in school, the madness set in because I started to think. I started to think about showing up in the neighborhood. I started thinking about walking up to the gang. The gang's wanting me to be their leader. I don't want to be their leader. I keep saying to myself, I wonder what my gang would say if I was to tell them I didn't want to be a gangster. I want to be a doctor or a lawyer or an architect or an engineer. I wonder what they would say. One of my gang would say if I was to tell them I didn't want to go out and hit people in the head. I want to go play baseball. I wonder what they would say. But you see, if you're like me and you're nothing and you're glued over there against the corner of the wall, you try to figure out that magic thing that frees you from there and stands you there and gives you that. You think about that and finally the answer comes. It's a bottle of Marco Petri red wine. So you think about that. You think about capping a seal on that baby and pouring it down and making that magic come all about you. And one day I'm sitting on the street corner. I got a whole gallon of that red wine and I cap it open and I drink the whole gallon. I'm sitting there as sober as I am right now. Frightened to death. My magic's not magic anymore. And a guy come along and tapped me on the shoulder and said, why don't you try these? And he gave me some pills. I found out that if I ate pills and drank wine, I could make the madness go away for a little while. It wasn't very much longer after that, sitting on the same street corner with a sack of pills and a gallon of wine. Nothing's working. And a guy tapped me on the shoulder and said, why don't you try this? And he gave me some morphine. I found out that if I put morphine in my arms and swallowed pills and drank wine, that I had a combination of things that sustained me for the next 14 years of my life. It was never one or two or three. It was a combination of all of it. I finally became too old to stay in that school. I came out of my neighborhood to become a gangster. That was my ambition in life. I wanted to be the Irish Lucky Luciano of Willowbrook. <laughs> but, but I had a problem. I didn't stand up too often. That's not conducive for being a gangster. You have to look a look when you're out there doing that stuff. You know what I mean? You can't run and say stick them up and puke on somebody. Now, I don't know, but in my neighborhood, we didn't gather up and talk about puking. We gathered up and talked about being tough. And the reason we gathered up and talked about being tough is because we were scared to death. People were going to find out we were scared to death. I had all kinds of little deals I tried. I, I could never make it as a lone ranger because I always was too far gone to attempt it when I got ready to do it. I always had it up here. I just couldn't make it work there. And so I was not having too luck. I had a reputation for being a tough kid. So I went up to, my, to some of the gangsters in the neighborhood and told them I wanted to do some gangstering with them. And I had a reputation, and so they are going to take me out to do some gangstering. So me and the gangsters went out to do some gangstering. And I was the lookout. And they come out from doing their thing, and I was getting arrested for being asleep on the curb. <laughs> Now, they're kind of narrow-minded about that. But because I got a reputation for being a tough kid, and, and you know, I game, and, you know, you know, I got all that stuff going on, and playing all them little roles, and, and they thought they'd give me another break. So we went out to do some more gangster, and I'm going to drive the getaway car this time. And they come out from doing their thing, and I'm asleep with the motor running the doors locked. And... That ended my gangstering career. <laughs> but you know, I was a never was. And if you don't know what a never was was, I'll tell you. A never was is something that's so frightened of failing, he doesn't try to do anything. He just sits around wherever he's at and says to himself, tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'm going to get up off this floor. Tomorrow, I'm going to get out of this jailhouse. Tomorrow I'm going to get out of this nut house. Tomorrow I'm going to get out of this penitentiary. Tomorrow I'm going to get out there. Tomorrow, tomorrow I woke up sick. <laughs> tomorrow I had to get well. And that's the cycle of my life. And the only thing that broke that cycle of my life up is when I got arrested. And I got arrested all the time. You know, if you live out there in the streets, you get arrested easy. You're just out there. They just drive up and say, get in. <laughs> yeah. Okay, get in. You're not asking why. Just get in. 
And I guess, uh, you know, in 1949 and 50, I, I had uh, what a lot of people think is uh, the whole deal. You know, I mean, a lot of people lived their entire lifetime with this idea that, you know, if you get a big apartment building and a closet full of $300 suits and a pocket full of money and people come around all hours, night and day, and you've got control over their lives and all this kind of stuff. I had all that stuff in 1949 and 50. I had it all. People are begging me. The big man for fear. The only problem was the big man couldn't leave the apartment because every time he did, the police jumped on him and took him to jail. Every once in a while, I used to get brave. I'd get in one of my new suits and I'd sneak downstairs and get in my big automobile. And I'm driving around the neighborhood. It's 5 o'clock in the evening. People are coming home from work. I'm asking me questions now. I'm driving up alongside of people in old beat-up pickup trucks and I'm saying to myself, what's the matter with me? wonder why I can't be like my brother. Good God, what's the matter with me? Why can't I just have a wife and a couple of kids like everybody else? What's the matter with me? I had no way of knowing. I know now as I look back on my experience that the thing that kept me from going totally and permanently insane was my ability to blame somebody other than me for my own actions. And the last thing I had prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, it's God's fault. He don't like me. The God my grandmother talked about when I was a little boy. It's a God I hear about in Alcoholics Anonymous every once in a while that scares me to death. When I hear people say, I guess if God wants me to have a job, he'll shoot it down here to the club. (laughs) The next time you get hungry, you go lock yourself up in a closet and pray for a hot dog. When God squirts you one through the keyhole, you call me. I'll be on the next plane east. I've been looking for a deal like that all my life. i tell you what I found out here in Alcoholics Anonymous hanging around people like you. I find out that God won't do anything for me I can do for myself. Nothing. Absolutely. And I don't think he'll do anything for you that you can do for yourself. I don't think that's his business. I think his business is only love me. I don't know about all that other business. I think it's me to put my thing in gear and get out there and doing that. Now, he always knew, even when I'm running crazy. God always knew I was one of his kids. I didn't know that. I thought I was one of the bastards. I didn't know I was one of God's kids. He knew. He just let me run around until I found it out. I didn't know that. 1951, I was going to the penitentiary. Now, this is a series of events that's really kicking the slats out from underneath me because I'm riding it in 51. And I'm on my way to the penitentiary, which is no big deal. That's something I've been shooting for for a long time. Finally made it. I'm top of the world. You know, it's all the biggies make it. All the biggies in my neighborhood have been there. Have they been in yours? I mean, the biggies. I mean, when you're a gangster, the biggies go to jail. I mean, that's... It's almost like going to college. You know what I mean? If you haven't been there, don't knock it. You know, they teach you a lot of things in them places, how to play dominoes. Really put things on your resume, like star second baseman for the San Quentin Pirates, two years running. <laughs> kind of hard to work those in on your resume, but it does work out a little. My mother comes to visit me in that old Los Angeles County Jail. She screams at me through the visiting screen, I'm a murderer. It seemed that my 17-year-old brother had gotten into some of my poison and taken an overdose of and died. I didn't know how to handle that. I handled like I handled most things. He got mad at it. Made it go away. Three days later, they handcuffed me with two, two, two detectives, and they stood me out underneath a tree, and they buried my baby brother. Now, I got all the guilt and shame and humiliation and degradation of a lifetime hanging around me, and I'd like to cry, but I don't know how. I don't have the simple gift of tears that God gives every creature that's born on the face of this earth and the reason I don't have them because I don't think they're necessary. I went on to the penitentiary. I stayed there a few years. I came out of there a few years sicker than I was when I went in there. I spent the next couple of years of my life trying to prove what a psychiatrist in San Quentin told me it wasn't true. He said, Johnny, people like you don't change. He took me down and showed me a little green room. He says, you're going to end up here, hot shot. And I told him, not me. I'm different. I come off now of that institution, bound to determine I had that deal beat. And six months later, I'm laying in a nut house, kicking and screaming. That's when I made my round to some of the better laughing academies in the country, interviewing psychiatrists. I used to talk to them. I sit there with my wraparound overcoat on and talk to them. They talked to me about my mother, and I talked to them about their mother. 
And then they introduced me to a thing called Better Living Through Electricity. <laughs> kind of a wonderful thrill you should never miss. I'll tell you one thing, if any of this stuff breaks down up here, I won't touch it. <laughs> I get very careful to make sure I don't step in any of them lines or anything. There's some things you just never forget, you know, I mean, just kind of get your attention real quick. I remember my last session with a skull jockey. It was in a nut factory in Fort Worth, Texas. Now, the reason I say it was a nut factory because I know it was a nut factory. I was there. And wherever I was was a nut factory because I put the head in there with nuts. And they just treated me for my illness again. And they shuffled me in and they set me down across the table from this guy. I remember looking up against his walls and seeing all of his degrees and diplomas and plaques and all them places that he'd been. And I thought, maybe he knows. Maybe he knows. Now, I want to tell you something. I felt exactly sitting across the desk from that doctor that I had felt sitting at my grandmother's knee, child in church, exactly the same way. I still felt different, strained, irritable, still had a tremendous hole inside of me with the wind whistling through me, only now i got one more problem, and this problem is worse than all the rest of those problems put together. Now the things I'm putting in my system to make those other problems livable in my life no longer make them livable. Now I can't get rid of me. Now I'm stuck with me on a 24-hour day basis. I'm in a lot of trouble. You know what the doctor told me? Johnny, if you didn't drink these things and swallow these things and smoke these things and shoot these things, you wouldn't have any problem. Sick as I was, I knew that wasn't a problem. Sick as I was. You know what my problem was? I was nothing. I've always been nothing. I came from nothing. I was nothing. I was going to be nothing. I used to put something in me I became almost. <laughs> to a nothing, almost the top of the world. Here's a guy who's supposed to know who obviously doesn't know that the thing I put in my system that transfers me from a nothing to an almost is not the problem. The problem is I'm a nothing. You know what being treated by the state of California and the federal government for 20 years of my life proved to me on a Greyhound bus going home to die? How unique I was. That there wasn't anybody else upon the face of the earth like me. I'd come from another planet and they dropped me off and they weren't coming back. And that's the way I felt. I went back to town to die and I almost made it. I came that close to making it. I came that close. But the sad part about people like me, you see, people like me who try to kill themselves can't. You can't do that. Because somewhere along the line, people like me got to rub out a little bit of the record. Somehow or other. That's what I believe. I, I couldn't have died with that type of a load on me. I tried. A little over 26 and a half years ago, they strapped me down in the bed in the Los Angeles County Jail when I hoped to be my last bed. In my last jail? Anywhere about that. A medical doctor came in and stood at the foot of my bed. I weighed 128 pounds and I was yellow. He looked at me and he said those words to me. He said, son, you're going to die. Nothing I can do for you. He gave me a little ray of hope. All day passed and all night passed. I just laid there and looked at the wall. He came back the next morning stood there and said the same thing. The third day I walked into my room, I had this terror grip me that I've never known before since. The idea came to me that I was going to live and not die. Get up out of that bed and go to the penitentiary and come back out and start that rat race all over again. God knows I didn't want to do that. I laid there for 18 days and 18 nights. I didn't eat, sleep, drink, or do anything. I just laid there. And one night, because I knew nothing better to do, I screamed out the only prayer I'd ever said in my life. I said, oh, God, help me. I thought for a long, long time nothing happened. Because there was no blinding flashes of light and nobody come running down the hall with a dozen donuts saying, we got an AA meeting down there. Yeah. <laughs> a little bird didn't come in and drop the fifth chapter on my chest. and I didn't wander off into the tulip somewhere. I, I just went to sleep for a little while. And I don't know how many of you ever kicked a two-year heroin habit, but that's what I was doing. That's the first time I'd been asleep in a long time. I started to get better and better and better. Tell you how sick I was? Two weeks after I screamed out that prayer in my deathbed, I'm up running around the jail looking for some more of the poison to put me back on the bed I'd just gotten off of. I don't know what you want to call that. I can tell you, I can call I call it insanity. I'm still looking for the answer in the end of a hypodermic syringe, in a bottle of pills, in a glass of whiskey or smoked weed or something. I'm still looking for the answer in something to make me feel better. And I know it ain't there, but I'm still looking to make it work. 
I'm standing in front of a superior court judge being sentenced to 20 years in the penitentiary. That don't mean nothing to me either. As I turned to walk out of the room, what he said to me down there drove me to my knees. And he didn't say it to me. He changed his conversation from me and said it to somebody else. He said it to a woman who was sitting in the courtroom. He said to her, Lady, if you care anything at all about the child you carry inside of you, you'll get so far away from this scum, he'll never be allowed to lay eyes on it. He's a blood-sucking parasite in society. He has no right being around decent people. If it was in my power, he never will be. And I'm walking out of the courtroom saying to myself, he ain't talking about me. He must be talking about my old man and my uncles and my grandfather or somebody. But he was talking about me. He put into words what I spent a lifetime trying to hide from the world. What I really, really was in here. Not what I put up out here, but what I am in here. The evidence of that man's statement was so damning that I spent the next nine months of my life locked up in solitary confinement. That's the way I was when I stumbled into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on the first Sunday in November 1959. Now, I don't take any credit for coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. If I'd have known where I was coming, I wouldn't even have come. The reason I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous is because the institution I was in allowed women to come in there. I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous a little over 24 years and some odd months ago to smell perfume. And I've been honking and sniffing around her ever since. <laughs> you got to be careful what gets us sick people in here. I remember my first impression of A&A. I moved in and I sit down in the back row in what I lovingly like to call my throne of contempt. I had my coat collar up and my shades on because I was cool. If I'd have been any cooler when I got here, I'd have froze to death, for God's sake. I remember looking up on the backboard. I saw two big gates, and I thought to myself, my God, I've wandered into an anti-aircraft brigade. I didn't know what Alcoholics Anonymous was. I said to this clown sitting next to me, what is this? He says, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I sunk down in my seat. Gangsters weren't supposed to be hanging out with them. Why not? If it had been Gangsters Anonymous or Over Hip Anonymous or Doo Doo's Anonymous or Dope Fiends Anonymous, some had a little ring of class about it. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't know what one was, but I didn't want to be one. So I thought to myself, I'll sit around and wait for these women to tell their racy story. And they got up and threw me a curve because they had sort of a twinkle in their eye and a smile on their face. And they sort of radiated something I didn't understand. And right away they ruined it, they started talking about God. And when I came here and you talked to me about God, I got up and ran out of the room because God was the reason I was. It was not my fault. I kept coming back to your meetings because I'd seen you, and seeing you I had seen the miracle, and I didn't know that either. I just kept coming back. You just kept talking about God. I kept listening. I didn't understand that. I used to lay awake and think about you. I think about these funny people who drove up there to this institution who carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Had twinkles and things. I didn't, and I thought about all the people that I've known all my life. None of them people had that. Every once in a while, I grab one of them convicts and throw him up against the wall and look in his eyes and say, "You don't have it." Turn around, and walk off. <laughs> you get a lot of strange comments in those places when you start doing stuff like that. Now, one Sunday a long time ago, I got up and I went to an AA meeting. I don't remember any difference about that day at all. I just go into an AA meeting. I moved in and I sit down where I always sat. I don't remember my attitude being any different. I don't remember anything about that at all. I do know it's the day I'd lived my entire lifetime for because it's the day that changed my whole life. The little guy that I knew did 23 flat years in the penitentiary, a little guy by the name of Les Hammond, who's dead now, wandered in and stood at a pulling of Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew this little guy. He used to be my baseball coach when I played for the San Quentin Pirates. Never was a meaner man who ever lived upon the face of this earth than that guy. He was mean, this fella. And something had happened to him. You know what he told me that day? He says, you don't have to live this way no more if you don't want to. It made more sense to me than anybody that ever said anything to me in life. It makes more sense to me right now than anything that I know. He says, you don't have to do it like this no more. After the meeting, I went up to him. I said, how do you learn how to live, Les? That's all I want to know. He looked at me and he smiled. He said, Johnny, there's a book called Alcoholics Anonymous in the library. You go get it. I go home and pray that you find some part of you in it. I guess he's prayed real hard, that little fella. Because I've been a student of the book Alcoholics Anonymous from that day to this day. And the only thing I've ever found in that book is me. I haven't looked for anything else. I'm not looking for a way to sober up the world or 
cure all society's ills. I'm looking for a way to live peacefully and comfortably and joyously with me and the loving God that made me. Now I'd like to explain to you the strange phenomena that takes place in my life. And I know nothing about your life. It seems like to me that the closer I adhere to the principles that are written in that book, and the more willing I become to share that knowledge in this fellowship, just for the sheer joy of doing it, the more peaceful and the more comfortable and the more joyous I live with me and the loving God that made me. I had a lot of trouble when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I was so different. I prided myself on my differences when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I looked different, I acted different, I dressed different, and I talked different. I was different. And I prided myself on my differences. And the more prideful I became in my differences, the sicker I became. And the sicker I became, the more prideful I became. And I'd sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'd hear people say, I used to drink, now I don't drink anymore, and everything is wonderful. I'd say, I guess I'm not alcoholic then. I'm not drinking either, and I'm crazy. I didn't understand that. I didn't understand it at all. That's the way I was. See, I was as sober as you are, and you were, when you were telling me that you didn't drink and everything was wonderful. I heard a guy in AA one time say, you got to get active in AA, and I didn't know what active was. A couple of days later, I went up to this secretary of this A&A group, and I said to him, I heard you got to get active in A. He said, that's right. I said, I want to know what I can do so nobody will know I'm a member. <laughs> he said, what? I said, I want to know what I can do in A&A so nobody will know I'm a member. He says, you really are sick, aren't you? <laughs> I'm dead serious. See, I don't even know what I wanted when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know. I have a slight, I don't have the slightest idea of what I wanted when I came here. I guess I wanted what you had, but I didn't know what you had. You said you were sober. So was I. But I was crazy when I was sober. Sober was not my friend. Sober was my enemy. See, I had a whole different connotation of sober when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Sober was when I was nuts. Sober was when the committee met in my head. The committee that kept playing those tapes of the things I'd done and the people I'd done it to. That's what sober was. Sober was a baby brother who was laying in the grave that I was responsible for. Sober was the people that I'd sold and sold and bought and sold like cattle for the things that made me feel better. Sober was the money I'd stolen and the people I'd harmed and the things I'd done and the blood from people. That's what sober was. Sober was the nightmare. You talk to me about being sober. I didn't want to be sober under those conditions. But that's what I thought I wanted. That's what I thought. I don't know. But see, what I wanted when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I wanted whatever it was you had, I guess, which was sober, but I wanted to live my own lifestyle. I wanted to be hip, slick, keen, and cool. I wanted to be a taker of things and an abuser of people. I wanted to stay that way and sober too. I was so hip when I came here, the balls of my feet tickled me when I walked. You know what will happen to you if you stay in Alcoholics Anonymous for 24 years and some odd months? Try to the best of your ability to give this program to anybody once at any time they want it one day at a time. You know what will happen to you? This program will de-hip you. You know why I know that? The other day my 22-year-old daughter called me a square. He said, Daddy, you're a lame. I said, Thank God I've made it. <laughs> I damn near died out there hip. And I'll tell you something even sadder than that. I almost died here hip. I almost was too hip to make this program. I was almost too prideful in my differences to make this program. I was almost too prideful to change in my differences. I want to be all them things, all them other people. And you know what changed me? My differences changed me. You kept talking about a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. You kept telling me the answers were in this program of recovery called Alcoholics Anonymous. So to prove to you I was different, and this program wouldn't work for me, I worked your program of recovery. 
Look what you've done to me. <laughs> it was somewhere in my fifth step that I heard myself admit a word, get a word out of my mouth that I couldn't get out of my mouth. I heard myself admit to this man I was taking my fifth step with that I was an alcoholic. And it came from down in here and it just exploded and it brought with it a freedom that I carry with me today. It also brought with me something that I carry with me today. It identified my problem. When I admitted that I was an alcoholic, you see, I was way over into the fifth chapter of our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, into the sixth chapter. I'd already read the doctor's opinion, found out what an alcoholic was even though I couldn't identify with it. I'd already read Bill's story and identified with some of the things that had happened to Bill in his feelings. I'd already read the chapter to the solution. I'd read the chapter to the agnostic. I'd read the chapter on how it worked. And I'd worked those steps up to number four and five. And when I got to five and found out that I was an alcoholic and found out what this malady was that I had, good God you can't understand what a relief that is for a person like me. Thank God I found out what was wrong with me. I'm an alcoholic. See, I just thought I was crazy. I just thought I was weird. I just thought I'd come from another planet somewhere. You, everybody else talked to me about drinking and not drinking and using drugs and not using drugs and don't live that way. I didn't want to. I didn't have any choice because I didn't know what was the matter with me. And when I got into the book Alcoholics Anonymous into this program of recovery, this beautiful, magnificent program of recovery, and found out what was wrong with me. I became willing to do anything to keep this terrible malady of mine from rearing its ugly head again. And they told me there's a solution. They told me this is the things we do. And when I got into chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, I found out that there's some answers to some problems and some promises. But I had a lot of problems. I still had a bad vocabulary when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. My vocabulary consisted of four four-letter words. Mother ran all in there somewhere. It's kind of triggered and made it go. Hey, it's a cuss people. They talk to me. Guy said to me one day, asked me one day, he said, if I knew what cussing was. And I said, no, what is it? He said, it's a crutch for conversational cripples. And I said to him, oh, what am I going to do about this? Because I didn't want to do that either. No more. See, I was... I wanted to be like you. I didn't want to, I didn't want to do things. I didn't want to embarrass you. That's been my sole motivating factor in alcoholics now. I've never wanted to embarrass you. So everything that's happened to me, I've done it so I wouldn't have to embarrass you. I wouldn't have to embarrass this thing that breathes life into my ever being, this program called Alcoholics Now. That's the only thing I do. I try to the best of my ability every day of my life. That's my only prayer. Every day of my life I pray, oh God, don't let me do anything to embarrass these people. Don't let me do anything to embarrass this magnificent way of life that's been given to me by the grace of God. So I became willing. So they sent me in rooms and they word by word, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, fed me the English language. And 23 years ago last June, they opened the doors of that penitentiary and let me out of there. Now what I do a world I don't know anything about. Knew nothing about. Had no idea what was going on out there. The first, my first introduction to the brave new world out there was my mother fell off the steps blind drunk. I picked her up and put her on the couch and said, Mom, I'm going to an AA meeting. She said, Fine, I think you should. <laughs> Took my mother a long time to get the alcoholics numb. I'm very proud tonight to tell you when she's sober, she goes to meetings. Now she don't stay sober. That you know that's none of my business? Did you know that? I've learned a great lesson in Alcoholics Anonymous from my mother. I learned that I do not have the power to get anybody sober. I don't have the power to get them drunk either. I don't even have any power to keep me sober. Where would I get any power? I'm powerless. My book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the only authority I know anything about, says I'm powerless. My book, Alcoholics Anonymous, tells me now, it must be the same book you have in Georgia. I guess. I don't see one around here, so maybe you don't have one in Georgia. I don't know. I just, I've just i been looking for it up here. I was going to wave it at you in case. Oh, there we got one. Yeah. Put it tells me. 
tells me I've got this daily reprieve from this thing that's killing me. But he said, my daily reprieve is only contingent upon my maintenance of certain spiritual conditions. Now to me, I don't know what that infers to you, but that infers to me that there are some spiritual conditions in my life if I'm allowed to stay sober on a daily basis. With some degree of peace. Not not insanely sober, but with some degree of peace. With a great degree of peace most of the time. It infers that I have incorporated some spiritual principles into my life. Where would they come from, these principles? I didn't bring them to Alcoholics Anonymous. We don't have spiritual principles out there where I live. There is no no spirituality in a person who takes and uses and abuses people for his own personal gratification. There is no spirituality about that type of a thing. That is a thing. There is nothing spiritual about that. The only time that type of thing is spiritual is when he has a spirit in him or spirits in him that is the only time that person has spirit and that's what I came to Alcoholics Anonymous with now somewhere during the application of this program recovery in my life that has spun around and I spend most of my time thinking about other people all the time I spend most of my time thinking about you Driving down the street, when I'm out there doing my job, I think about you. When I'm out there on a golf course playing golf, I think about you. When I'm on an airplane flying to Atlanta, I think about you. You'd never know what a great thrill it was for me to walk off the airplane and see little Debbie standing there. Just love Debbie. Debbie's like my own kid. And to see old, what's his name over here, asking me to come, Joe. Do you don't understand that. If you don't understand that, you'll never understand it. I can't give it to you because it's not mine to give. I had to do things when I come out of the penitentiary. I had to go to work. <laughs> I told you I had a hard time getting that second baseman for the San Quentin Pirates on my resume. So I went out and a guy gave me a job in the oil field. I showed up for my first job. The guy said to me, he says, uh, what's your Social Security card number, kid? I said, what? He says, your Social Security card number. And I said, I don't have one. He says, you don't have a Social Security card number? And I said, no, I don't. He said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 30. (laughs) He says, you don't have a Social Security card? And I said, no. And he says, why not? And I said, I've never needed one. (laughs) He said, what have you been doing all these years? I said, you wouldn't understand if I told you. He took me down and got me a social security card and put me to work. And then I used to sit around in markets and watch what they did when they got their paychecks. You know who they are. It's them people out there. You know what they do? They go get them kids and they put them in them baskets and they run them around the market and fill them full of food. Then they stand at the checkout stand and pay them and smile. That's what they do. I got a paycheck and by this time my wife would come back and she's got that little girl I'm not supposed to see. And I run home and get to her. I said, we're going to the market. She says, we don't need nothing. I said, we're going to the market anyhow. <laughs> that's, that's what they do. She looks at me funny when I talked about them. So she, you know, reluctantly, she, well, I guess she thought my elevator wasn't all the way up anyhow. But <laughs> And so we went down to the market, and I did all that kind of stuff. We do, and played the little part. I went home, and an hour later, I asked for some money to get a haircut, and Somebody had stole her purse. Now, you want to hear somebody scream, you ought to hear a thief when he gets stolen from. <laughs> My very first paycheck. I ranted and raved, jumped and hollered and run around there. Now, I'll tell you one thing. If I could have found that guy who stole that purse, there'd be a different speaker here tonight. <laughs> I was just full of the spirit. <laughs> Wonderful a and Finally got all through. She poured me a cup of coffee. She says, you done? I says, yeah. She says, now you know how it feels. <laughs> I went back to work that afternoon, and I got another paycheck in two weeks. It's been 22 years and some odd months, and I ain't missed any paycheck. 
Ain't nobody stole anything from me. 22 years and some odd months. Not any paycheck. Been pretty good. I got caught up in material values. In my first five or six years of sobriety, I became more interested in material values than I were in your values. And I got to pay the penalty for that. See, any time I create more of an interest in anything else than I do in you, I get to pay the penalty for that. Anytime. Any time my values out there superimpose my values in here, I get to pay the penalty for that. And the penalty for that, in my case, was not drunkenness, thank God. It was just an awful lot of confusion and a lot of pain and a lot of dissolving of situations I had no control over. Because, see, when I five or six years sober, I asked God for help in a problem that I didn't understand, and he solved it in a way I didn't like. And it was kind of kind of ego deflating is what it was and I didn't like it I sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous I'm living a little $60 a month rented room in East Long Beach and I'm working 16, 18 hours a day trying to pay off a bunch of debts that I'd incurred and I'm going to meetings and people are telling me how wonderful it is because they got here 90 days ago and they, they just took delivery on their brand new Mercedes that week and how God was really blessing them and by the grace of God they gave me my business back and if you're sick like me, you're sitting in meetings wondering when God's going to bless you. You don't understand how sick that is? I'll tell you how sick it is. I'm six or seven or eight years out of a penitentiary, and I'm sitting in meetings of alcoholics not, and I'm expecting to be rewarded for receiving a gift. I'm expecting to get something other than out of this deal other than sobriety in a way of life. And I'm expecting it. And I've come to understand that in my own life, through my own experience, the greatest killer in my life is my expectations. My expectations clouds my vision. My expectations hypnotize me into being wonderful because I'm not drinking. I'm entitled to all this now that I ain't drinking. I'm entitled to a big home and a big automobile. I'm enti- I'm not drinking. Guy asked me a while ago how I was doing. I told him I'm better than I deserve. <laughs> he said, oh, you probably get what you deserve. And I said, yeah, if I do, you better hope you ain't on the elevator with me. <laughs> now, I know you don't have this problem in Atlanta. But in Bellflower, where I go to the meeting, we get a lot of folks entitled to a lot of stuff. <laughs> they become entitled to that. You ask them, they'll tell you. And when I became entitled to, I was as close to getting drunk as I ever been close to getting drunk, sober, and I'll call it not. And if you think that you're one of God's chosen people because you don't put chemicals in your system anymore, you may be headed for an ego trip that's hard to deflate too. There ain't no chosen people. They're just people. God makes the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust. I get a kick out of this theme we've got here called gratitude, the language of the heart. I believe that gratitude is not a word. I believe gratitude is an action. I believe it's something you do. I don't believe it's something you say. I could stand here forever. we got people in my part of the country, now I know not in Georgia, but where I go to meet. Now, I just want to tell you that, because we're a little different out there in California. Everybody tells you that. We have people in my groups who are so grateful from these podiums they can't see. They just cry and do all that stuff. And you couldn't get one of them people to pick up a chair if your life depended on it. <laughs> he knocks over ashtrays and his coffee all over the floor running out of the meeting when the amen said. He's just so grateful he can't wait to get home and see Magnum P.I. Now, I don't, now wait, now, now that's where I live. Don't applaud them folks. I know you don't do that in Atlanta. I know you're all just jumping to get into action in Atlanta. But where I live, we have people like that. They're a little sick. Because, you see, these folks are entitled to things now that they aren't drinking. They, they ask God to God. In my group, we have people who come to meetings. And our meetings start generally at 8.30. And they show up at 8.29. 
and they're real upset if they don't get a chair. And they expect to have a chair. And they expect the coffee to be made. And they expect the secretary to have the speakers lined up, and the program lined up. And they expect somebody to pick up their ashtrays, empty their cups, and put away their chairs. And they expect to be entertained for an hour and a half. And they think that their obligation ends when they put a dollar in the basket. Somebody ought to tell those people that when they drink two cups of coffee and eat one donut, they already got the meeting in the hole. Now, I know they don't do that in Atlanta. But in Belfast, where I go to meetings, we have people like that. I just want you to know that. And I'm not... I don't judge. I just observe and report the facts. <laughs> My sponsor says, and I believe this, he says, if anybody talks about God for over five minutes from the podium, don't ask them for a ride home. I don't know how we got into this, but I guess it's all right. <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to tell you right now that uh, I don't know anybody in the world who lives better than I do. I really don't. I don't know anybody in the world whose life is better than mine. You know that I don't want to be anybody else. For a long time now, I've never wanted to be anybody else. For a long time now, I've never wanted to go anywhere else or do anything else. For a long time, when I first was in Alcoholics Anonymous, I guess, I guess I thought I had to go somewhere or be somewhere or get somewhere. You know, when I quit trying to go anywhere in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been all over the world. I don't know whether you can understand that or not. And I always I thought for a while that in my first years of sobriety that I was supposed to get something. I'm supposed to achieve and to get. And, uh, and you know, when I quit trying to get anything, I've been given it all. It's a terrible parallel in my life. I don't understand. Of course, I really don't have to understand it. But yet I do understand it. Because, you see, from the first time I ever laid eyes upon you to this very instant, and from the first time I ever took our program of recovery and applied it to my life, I have never wanted to be anywhere else. I have never wanted to do anything else but to spend my time with you. That's my greatest pleasure. And all that does for me, you see, when I'm allowed to spend my time with you and to be with you in these rooms and to share our experience, strength, and hope, what this does with me, it gives me a little strength and a little bit of hope that I can take this thing out there and apply it where I must have to apply it. You see, it isn't a necessity for me to apply any principles of recovery in this meeting. What this thing really is, like conventions, things like this, these things are all wonderful. And they're all beautiful. And they're things where we all come together and the great amount of love and strength and hope that are here permeates these rooms and hangs over it. But the real thing will start Monday morning when we get out there in the world where we have to apply what we've learned here. What we have to learn here. That's what it is. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. Alcoholics Anonymous is about learning how to live here so we can apply it out there. Bob talked about it. Talked about it very well. There's a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous who died drunk before they realized that. Look around you sometimes. How many people do you see here between 5 and 25. What do you think happens to them? I can tell you what happens to them. Sadly, they think the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous will keep them sober. The fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous will not keep me sober. As much as I love the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and its people, it will not keep me sober. As much as I love the meetings, 
and the things that go on the meetings, they will not keep me sober. It was read here tonight, and I hear it in every meeting that I go to. It says very simply that there's no human power that can relieve me of my alcoholism. No human power. But it says very simply when it says that, it says, but God could and would if he was sought. Now the sad or the great or the more joyous dilemma of my life is this. God, Alcoholics Anonymous, and you are synonymous in my life. I have never been able to differentiate or separate the three of you. I cannot think of one without having the other. I do not apply the one without the other. They're just kind of hand in hand and hand in hand. God, Alcoholics Anonymous, and you. The three things to me are like breathing in and breathing out. That's the way it is with me. Because you see, I found here in Alcoholics Anonymous the thing that I was looking for all my life when I came out of life. I found it here. I haven't looked anywhere else. I haven't gone anywhere else. I haven't tried to find anything else. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love you. And I love the things that have happened to me. And sometimes I'm so thankful for them that I just want to go off somewhere and cry. I just don't know how to do things like that. But I learned about this word gratitude. It's the language of the heart. Because, you see, I know that the heart can speak to heart when the words can't be brought in there because it happened to me. Somebody that I love very much, probably the old lady by the name of Myrtle Snyder, who was probably more responsible than anybody who's alive for me being here today. In my early sobriety, I loved this old lady because she was just like a mother to me. She's the only mother I've ever known. And I got word one night as I was coming in from work a long time ago that Myrtle had had a series of heart attacks and she was in San Bernardino when she was in the hospital. And San Bernardino was a long way away and I got in my old beat-up car and it's 11 or 12 o'clock at night and I'm driving to San Bernardino to see this old lady I love so much. And I'm crying. Because I know I'm going to have to sit up on this bed and look at her and I'm going to have to try to thank her for giving me her life. For giving me this thing I called Alcoholics Anonymous and presenting it to me and making it attractive enough for me to have it. And I don't have the words for those. I don't have the capacity of that type of vocabulary. And I don't know what to do. And I go to this hospital and I get up on her bed and she's sitting there with them things hanging out of her nose. And I'm crying. I'm trying to tell her how much I love her. And I'm trying to tell her how grateful I am. I said, oh, Mama, how do I thank you for my life? I'm too grateful I can't see it. I'm, I'm crying and I don't understand. And her, her eyes cleared and she came out of this deep coma. And to me it was the language of the heart talking to her. And she smiled at me and she had the most beautiful twinkling blue eyes you've ever seen. And she looked at me and she said these words. And I hope I carry them with me to my dying days. She said, sweetheart, there is only one way that you can ever express your gratitude in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's to remain a good example of what this program can do for you. And I hope and pray to God I always will. Thank you.